1: Hello and welcome. Thank you for downloading another Books of the Year podcast from your friends at Books of the Year the podcast that you're listening to at the moment we're back after, it was just a very short break Hmm. there was a bit of re-plugging that was going on yes yes, there was taking that jack plug out of there and sticking it into another hole
2: yes, uh, very technical but the important thing is that uh, for those people who have been steadily filling their bookshelves with books that they've not yet read because they've been buying every book that we recommend they will have seen that there's a little bit of respite but the bad news for them is that we're back and we've got lots of great Guess coming up.
1: Harlan Coben is going to be with you shortly. A missive from Dylan Baines here, because you can email and uh, you can tweet and you can uh, WhatsApp. And get on the Instagram with all the kids. That's right. Um, Simon and Matt, this is, says Dylan, love the pod, Ken. <laughs> right. Dillons in Shore and by Sea, they talk like that. Oh, do they? All right. March has been a little drizzly and misly and grey down here in West Sussex, and so I have found myself turning to some good old-fashioned pulp fiction. There's something about Raymond, Raymond Chandler and Ross MacDonald that oh, really yeah. suit the weather, even if their books are mainly set in sunny Los Angeles. Hmm. I just wondered if you two had any go-to cosy reads or authors for this time of year. Spring is just around the corner, and that means I'll be reaching for my battered copy of E.M. Forster's A Room with a View. Keep up the good work. I very much enjoyed Damascus Station. Thanks for your recommendation. A book I wouldn't have picked up usually, but very enjoyable. Pip-pip, says Dylan. So... Do you have any go-to cozy reads? Well, I so I doubt I would go
2: back to other books cuz I've just got so many books that I'm uh reading at the moment. However, there are authors that I would go back to. So Ian Rankin, this won't come as any surprise. Uh Ian Rankin, whenever he's got a new one out, I am all over that. So, similar with Lee Child. The kind not, of books Are that, they cozy? I don't think they're cozy, but they're certainly I know what I'm going to get and I know I'm going to enjoy it and it's going to be uh you know a couple of weeks of just Losing myself in that world, so that that would for me count as a as a sort of cosy read. But as far as going back and reading books I've already read, I don't. Yeah, I, I've just got a, I've got a box full of books that I still haven't read, so I've got to get through those. First.
1: I'd recommend TikTok. The TikTok,
2: yes. You're you going not, on not that. Not the app, but,
1: no. um, but, but. Oh, oh, yours. Oh, book. right. i thought. I thought we were well, I think going my book to is a Chinese Party. No, no, no. I'm not supported. I don't give any dating. It's from Party. your book. No, no, no. no. But uh, as a book, I think you could say that TikTok. Is, yes. Is a cosy thriller. Yes, you would. Yes, absolutely. Completely cosy. Yeah. And and largely set in shore and by sea. I'm <laughs> Lying through my teeth here. It definitely isn't. The only answer to your question is: I did actually buy a book yesterday. Dylan, which I suppose does fit the remit. I've only read about five pages, and it's, it's it starts with like six pages of incredible quotes from people saying this is my favourite book of the year. Oh really? All oh, right. Okay. It's Underland: A Deep Time Journey by Robert McFarlane, who writes so fantastically. I mean, so it's not a it's not a novel, um, but he's just writing about the underground and uh, the underland and life below the surface of the earth. <laughs>
2: what does that so? Obviously, we're not talking about the underground, as in London no. Underground. No. no. So it's he's about talking about nature, mate. Okay. He's a great
1: nature writer. So it's non-fiction. Yeah, it's non-fiction, indeed. Right. So okay. Underland, lovely cover. First five pages are great, um but to be honest, it's page after page after page of every author you've ever heard of saying, "This is my favorite book of the year." So wow. okay. at that point, you're thinking, "Okay." I, but I'll give this in okay. which case yeah i think i will give that okay um a tweet from nick wiggins uh
2: love the podcast i just started damascus station after listening to the episode with david mccloskey a quick note for matt uh who was trying to work out what sdr was well it's mentioned in the first sentence of the book smiley face eight hours into his surveillance, surveillance detection, detection route. route well what i would say there nick is that you know sdr it's not you do have to do a little bit of reading before you work out what SDR is. But uh, no, it's a good point. It is right there at the start. Uh, remember, if you want to get in touch with us, uh, email at any time. The address is booksoftheyear at yahoo.com. We are sticking with Yahoo. Everyone else has gone, but we're still there on the Yahoos. And also follow us on Twitter at Books of the Year. Our DMs are open, whatever that means. Not and yet.
1: also on the Instagram oh, yeah. at Pick Any Page. Uh, Do you think Nick Wiggins is a spy? Because if he just instantly spotted on the first line that SDR stands for surveillance detection route, it almost certainly, I think, means that Nick... Works for MI5 or MI6. I do
2: have this habit of assuming that people work for MI5. Certainly whenever there's a security correspondent on
1: the news. Yes. I always Or Jeremy, my... Vine. Yes. Yeah, he's so <laughs> Jeremy Vine. He is so obviously a spy.
2: Have we covered that before? That yeah. Jeremy I mean, Vine no, is one, a spy?
1: no one is naturally like Jeremy Vine. <laughs> okay. It, he has to be undercover MI5, yes. MI6. Yes. Let's put that to him. No, I don't need to put it to him. Oh, do you not? No, because he's oh, taller right. than me. Oh, because he'll deny it. And he's on a bike. Obviously. With a helmet and a yeah. camera. Yeah, so, yeah. So, oh, camera. so they have it on film. Yeah. Um, anyway, enough of this, and on with the episode. So here we go. Another Books of the Year podcast with uh, one of our favorite authors, Harlan Coburn, who has a new bestseller. Well, it's almost a contradiction in terms it says a new bestseller because we don't know that for certain, but we assume that it is.
0: We do now. Oh, we do now. Yes, we oh, do really? now. What do we yes. know? Oh, right. OK, so you're a bestseller. It sounds very braggy to say this, but we just got word that it's going to debut at number one on the New York Times bestseller list. I literally just heard. Okay. So so I, now we can okay. now we can say. Wow, that sounds so. What a terrible way to start. I'm really are you kidding? I'm really not that full of myself, people. But <laughs> are you kidding? As, well, what's interesting about that is that you know you've
1: had that slot many times before, and this is your thirty fifth book. Yes, is that right? Do you feel the same kind of nerves, or do, is there any kind of tension in you, as you wonder what how this one is going to be? received so then when you get that kind of news it's sort of reassuring
0: I've I, I, I reached a stage where it's always special it's always so great I try to enjoy every moment of it I never take anything for granted I actually didn't think it was going to be number one this particular time and which is a real champagne problem and I recognize that um but it's a it's a wonderful feeling and um I'm I'm I'm, I'm thrilled at how people reacted to I will find you and that just doesn't get old. I think when it gets old, you're in trouble.
1: Why didn't you think it was going to be
0: number one? There's another book that was out that I thought was going to had the momentum <laughs> to beat it. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's just, you know, like a career in writing, like read a career, but especially in writing, you're either going up or you're going down. You're never really staying stagnant. And so it's just, uh, you know, one day that will happen. And so you're, just, you're prepared and you're happy about uh, the success I've enjoyed, you know.
1: Uh, Matt, describe the cover, please, for I Will Find You. Yes, so we've
2: got a darkening sky at the at the top, but what is uh, dominating the cover is the figure right at the bottom, and he's walking away from us, and he's walking up what appears to me to be a pier into the sea, um, but it's a very, very thin pier, so it might be something else. <laughs> um, and then you can just about pick out a, a City Horizon... In the background, and Harlan Coburn in white, and then in red, the title, I Will Find You, and a testimony from Richard Osman at the bottom, the absolute master of huge twists and turns.
1: So, uh,
0: who is going to find who? So, the, the first line of this book, if I have it open there, but I think I have it memorized by now, yes. is, I am serving the fifth year of a life sentence for murdering my own child. Spoiler alert. I didn't do it. And so we have David Burroughs in prison. He's for murdering his own child, if you can imagine anything more horrific. And he gets a visit from his sister in law who has a photograph. And it's a photograph of an amusement park. And in the background in the photograph, they see a little boy walking who they are both certain is his son still alive, the person he supposedly murdered, still alive. How can this be? So David has to break out of prison with Rachel's help and try to find the answer.
1: And did that idea arrive fully formed? Is it a sentence that arrived fully formed? Where did where did this idea come
0: from? I think in this case, it's funny. Usually I know very specifically where the idea came from. and this one, I kind of don't. But I think it came from that sentence. And I think the idea of, could I start a person in that dire circumstance and still write a novel with redemption and hope and even joy and humor? Um, and I think that was sort of the challenge. And I really wanted this one... To be gut-wrenchingly emotional, um, where you really are riding with David and you really want him so badly to find out the truth about what happened to his son that we are just glued to the page. Tell us more Tell us more about um, David Burroughs, uh, married to Cheryl. He was married to Cheryl, who was the mother of the—this uh, uh, is another thing I was thinking about. He's married to, to Cheryl when this tragedy occurs in their life. And— he has not spoken to her since he's been in prison for five years because he wanted to also divorce himself from everybody that was around him. And, but imagine, as I was thinking about this idea, I was thinking, there's going to be a scene when the two of them get back together. And he has to say to her, I think our, our son is still alive. And she's moved on, in a sense. She, not that she's forgotten her child, but she's remarried and going to have a, a baby with somebody else. And I was just thinking, that's going to be really cool to write.
1: Can I ask you about the? Is it okay? You said that he's going to get out of prison. Yes. Okay. So yeah. think,
2: he's going to get out of prison. Yes. Yeah. Otherwise, yeah. there's
1: no story, really.
0: Right. Yeah. I wanted to get out, but I couldn't.
1: <laughs> um, that's it. That's that's not that's a number the,
0: one. Very quick. Bestseller. Yeah. It's a short novel.
1: <laughs> can you can you just um, tell us a little bit how you? Because it's one thing for us to read it and to go on that journey, but for you to invent a way for a man who clearly is in a tough prison to es- You know, it's a tough prison. No one escapes from this kind of prison, but you have to invent something that's interesting and challenging and thrilling for us. Just tell us a little bit about
0: how you approached breaking him out. I tried doing it step by step. It's sort of, I'm not, it's interesting, because this, this book has a, a couple of what I would call action sequences, if you will. And I don't like action movies. I don't really enjoy reading action very much. The way I try to do it is to be extraordinarily internal, you are you are um david you can't do that in the same way in a movie and you are going through the exact same steps he is going through and it takes a long time but i sit there and i try to think what would i do what could possibly happen how can i make this work in a way that will feel real and get your blood pumping and there's a couple moments during the escape when i'm hoping you are trying to catch your breath and racing through the pages to see if he's able to do it, even though you know he's gonna be able to do it, because as you can point out, there's not much of a book if he doesn't. Um, But I try to always do action sequences, fight sequences from the viewpoint of the person rather than the camera's outside and you're watching the action. I want you to feel David, I want you to be David.
2: And and even with that um, prison break, there's still stuff in the book that we're not revealing now, but it doesn't quite... There's something that goes slightly wrong right at the end of the prison break, which, which again, is another little hook to keep you going. I wonder whether, when I it struck me as I was reading it, that there could have been a number of places where you could have started this book. You could have started because he's in prison for murdering his child, and the, one of the reasons why he's the main suspect is he's in the house when the body is found. And it struck me that you could have started the book with him waking up and discovering and discovering the body. It could have been with him going on trial, but you cho- you've chosen to do it five years into this stretch, and you've, you've sort of alluded to this already. But I just want to explore that a bit more. Was was there ever a point where you were like, do you know what? Actually, a more interesting point might be to start from here. What what was your your thinking for starting where you did?
0: One of the. Um techniques that I try to do with writing, and I think it's a good technique if somebody out there is trying to write, is try to start your story in the middle and see what happens. Don't start with me looking out the window with a sunset, right? Get right into the heart of it. So yes, I could have started in all those spots and it might have been a, a fine book if I did. And my guess is when, or if we turn this into a TV series or a movie, they may want to start at those points. But I thought it was just that line I really loved, and I loved the idea that I'm starting right when he gets the photograph. Um, in today's world, I think you have to start a story fast. You're not just competing with other books, but you're competing with the internet and social media and all the other stuff that we waste our time on. Um, and it's a technique. It, while I say technique, I don't mean that in a cheap way. I think that's the way most the best stories are told. It's what I try to do when I'm doing a story is where, how can I start this at the most exciting place, but still have it make sense so that you are into the story. And part of the technique in this case was go first person. So David is telling you what's going on. He is sitting in prison. It's five years after he's been put there. His son's been dead. He is at the lowest point he can be. And now he has a visitor for the first time. I think that's a compelling place to start. And then I can give you the backstory later in quick ways and through the conversations that he has. Not with long, you know, going back, but that's the how I thought was to be the best way of telling the stories. There's always more than one way to tell a story. I could have probably done it that way. Maybe it would have been as good, maybe better, but probably worse. So that's, uh, I, if, I, if you're out there listening and you want to write a book, try to start in the middle. Try to start with the, just for just for practice. Start it at one of the most exciting places, and don't yet worry if we're not going to get it, and see what happens. Having had that idea as a as a great opening line,
1: and as a premise for the book, did you know what was going to happen? Did you are you one of those people that plans and preps, or do you just start writing like Ian Rankin or Chuck, One of those who ju- who always claim that they just start and see where the story takes them.
0: I'm a little bit of both. You know, there's that, what we call the pants are flying by the seat of their pants yeah. and an outliner. I know the, I know the ending. So I knew where his son Matthew was and what happened to his son Matthew before we started. So I know the beginning, the hook, and I know the answer. I know that I know nothing in between, very little. I knew I was going to break him out of prison, but from there, I really didn't know where he was going to go. I didn't know how it was going to turn out. I didn't really even think about, I knew I'd have... You know, Some sort of law enforcement chasing him, but I didn't really cre- um, uh, create Max and Sarah until I got to those moments. Those are the two FBI agents who are following him. So each step then there's a great quote from E.L. Doctorow. Um, he said that writing is like driving at night in the fog with just your headlights on. You can only see a little bit ahead of you, but you can make the whole journey that way. The difference between what what Lee or Ian claim, <laughs> I believe them. I love very close of friends course, of mine, as yes. you know. I love them both. I love their books both. I do know who done it, and 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 that before I start. Can you imagine operating their way? I've only well, I wrote one book called The Woods where I did not know the ending when I started. That was the only time in thirty-five novels I didn't know the ending. These four people were in the wood. Four kids were in the woods. Two were found dead. Two or not, two are disappeared, and you don't know what happened. And I had to start the novel just because timing-wise, it was it, it, an idea ripens or it rots, and I loved the idea, so I just started to write it. And About page hundred, I, I figured out the ending. Um, I could certainly, you know, I can imagine doing. I can imagine doing it every which way. I can imagine trying to outline it all out. And sometimes, some books I outline out more. Sometimes I really am flying by the seat of my pants. Sometimes I'm. First person, I think it's going to be like this book starts first person and then moved into third person. Again, not planned. Um, So, in thirty-five books, I will do anything that produces pages. Anything—that's how I sort of live my life. If if it's producing pages, good. If it's not producing pages, bad. So, uh, Matt read out the quote from
1: Richard Osman uh, on the front about being the master of twists and turns. Are they? Do you just instinctively know? When there's when a twist needs to happen. So there's one particular chapter that ends almost basically with a punchline. That's how I see it. Um, and you go, oh, oh, okay. Do you ju- is that an instinctive thing, or do you think no, we need one because I've written at least ten thousand words and I haven't twisted it.
0: Uh, it's instinctive, I think. It's but right. But that's part of the instinct, right? That all of a sudden you're going, mm, this. I need a moment here. I need something to spice it up or 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 move it faster. Um, it's it, that's, but it's instinctive. I don't like plan it out, saying every forty-seven pages I need a twist or something like that. And so there'll be at times in the books there'll be twist after twist after twist, and then there'll be times when there when there's not. And part of it is pacing, so it's very very fast-paced when he breaks out, and and I think this book maybe more than any other I've written is probably the fastest-paced novel I've ever written. But then I want those moments when he's going returning to his home in Revere, Massachusetts, of his childhood. To be a little more emotional and to step back and and take my time a little bit with those. So part of that is just pacing, and you can't just go at one pace for the whole time. You have to have balance.
2: I want to ask you, Harlan, about um, chicken extinction theory, which is something that comes up about two thirds of the way into the book. So I'm not going to be giving anything away. This is a right. plot point. But um, I'd, I basically, it, I, I also want to talk to you about how it, how that theory. Uh, is I, I found it a really interesting way of, of, of justifying making what ultimately is probably the wrong call. But right. obviously people listening to this don't know what chicken extinction theory is or might not. I certainly didn't before I read the book. And I don't know whether you whether you made it up yourself or whether it's a real <laughs> theory, but but first of all, just tell us what chicken extinction theory is. Well,
0: it's first of all, people will do anything to justify their own positions, which is part of what this is. And and the chicken chicken extinct theory, I don't know if that's what it's called, but there are those who will claim, um, against vegetarianism, and I'm not saying again, we're not taking sides on this, that take the chicken for example. If we didn't Eat them, they would be extinct because how could they survive out in the wilderness by themselves? How could they be in the wild? They would just be gone, or many of them would never live for even a second. So, is it better that at least you lived for a little bit of time and you kept chickens alive by eating them, or is that the cruelty to animals? Now, I'm going to start getting a bunch of vegetarians calling right now saying, What's wrong with what I said? And I'll get a lot of. And it's not a question, but this is right or wrong. It's a question of how we justify our own actions, because if we love chickens, we use this argument, and if we don't like chickens, we use the other argument. And that's how human beings are. We do. I, I, part of what our human condition is is to find our, is we we find our self interest, and then we find things that back our self interest. It is. I'm glad you like that though. <laughs> yeah, no,
2: no, it absolutely jumped out straight away <laughs> because I know there have been so many times where you you're faced with this sort of ethical problem, and instinctively. You know that that one of those roads that you could go down is probably the right one, right. but it's also the one that involves quite a little bit of sacrifice on exactly. your part, and maybe it's not as great for you. But you take that route, and you say, and and just to justify my my decision here, and that's why I I I love those parts of a book where you're you're clearly presenting characters, and I obviously don't want to g- go into the reasons why the this theory comes up, but basically there is a character who has done something unspeakable. And justifies it to themselves, saying, "Yeah, but you know, what, what if I'd done something else? Maybe it would have turned out the worse." And you're like, "No, it wouldn't."
0: <laughs> ex- ex- and then exactly, I mean, it was, we we all self-justify, don't we? I mean, we all self-rationalize our decisions. That's that's part of human nature. The evil person, like if you're talking politics or whatever else, and you think somebody's evil, they don't think of themselves as evil. They justify it in some way. Oh, well, you know, the other person I would have voted for is even worse. And that would have, let, whatever it is, we all do it. And it's a fascinating part of human nature that I explore a little bit. And I will find you in all my books.
1: You've mentioned Max and Sarah, the uh, FBI yeah. uh, team uh, who, are on, who are on this case. I found them... Uh,
0: Immensely annoying. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Here's the funny thing. This is so great. I just did a podcast uh, with a very, a very famous American named Charlie Gibson and his daughter. Charlie was uh, ran Good Morning America. And he and his daughter were going on on how much they love Max and Sarah. And a couple people during the, the talks, I said, Max and Sarah are going to be like the killers and stay close. The the Bar- Kenan Barbie killers, and if you watch the TV series, stay close. Half the people are going to love them. Half are going to hate them, and I love that. No one's going to be indifferent to them. You're either going to love them or you were going to hate them. So I'm not at all upset that you found them annoying.
1: Yeah. Did you find them annoying? Matt? I did. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think. Yeah, yeah. I think. Anyway. So i So it it just makes you even more uh, on David's side. I think one of the, I was what I was reading this book, Holland at the same time as uh, I was watching uh, on uh, HBO in America and Sky Atlantic here, The Last of Us, um, this hugely uh, successful drama based on a, uh, a computer game. Have you seen it?
0: I have not seen it yet, okay. no. Well,
1: there is a scene in it. Uh, this, might be a, this might be a... There is a scene where in the original video game, You'll see what the connection is. I think is that the two main characters are Joel, who's the father figure, and there's Ellie, who's a girl's not his daughter, but they've become kind of like surrogate father and surrogate daughter. And to get to get the girl out of this hospital, he basically shoots everybody that he can. Who, if he thinks you're a threat, he's going to kill you. And because he wants to rescue Ellie, got it. And it's they did a survey of people who played the game, and of the people who weren't parents, 50% said he made the wrong ethical choice in shooting these medics who were there. And 100% of parents said they'd have done the same thing. Right. And there's very little similarity between your book and the TV show, apart from what a parent will do t- to save their child. And yeah. and in, in that situation, your man, David Burroughs, will do anything. And I suspect before anyone sort of says, oh, I'm sure I could have done that, we would have done
0: the same. Yeah, it's a question I ask all the time. This is what all of my books, in a sense, are about. And whenever I have an audience, I ask them this. I said, if I were to ask this audience, would you kill somebody? The answer is no. Would you kill somebody to save your child? The answer is yes. So where is that line? And as close as I can try to get to that line as a writer, that's where it really gets interesting. How how many people? What would you do? Is it, How about just improving their life? Where is that line? And when you're a parent, when, you know, and it's not just parents because it's not fair to just, as though a person who's not a kid wouldn't understand it, they do. But there's just a difference when you say that question to somebody. Would you kill somebody? No, definitely no. Would you kill somebody to save your child's life? Definitely yes. So then where is that murky line? And I think about this every book I've written.
1: What's fascinating about it is that there isn't, a, you know, there isn't a clear answer. You know, uh, there isn't shouldn't a clear be. answer. Because I, I think most parents in the in the circumstances and the pressurized circumstances that you write about probably would make the same yep,
0: choice i think so
1: and matt definitely would. Uh, yes definitely <laughs> <laughs> wouldn't probably wouldn't even need the
2: child in the equation just get out there and do it um i uh, we are speaking so i think yesterday marked three years since um since we first had the lockdown yes. or the pandemic And um, steadily now, we are getting uh, the books that we're getting on this podcast, if they're fiction, they are set in a world either Mm. as the pandemic is still raging or as yours is just after the pandemic. In other words, as close to to, to modern times as possible. And it's it's, uh, fascinating for both of us to talk to writers about how you incorporate the pandemic into your book. I mean, obviously, the one option is to ignore it and say it's set in 2019, But something struck me as I was reading yours in that when uh, our main character is on the run, he uses a mask a lot, which in pre-Covid times would have straight away, someone would have gone, why is that guy? Very suspicious. Yeah, 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 straight away. However... Now this is a real door that's been opened for thrillers, for thriller writers. Is you can have your character put on a mask and no one's going to bat an eyelid. And it's almost like you—you you, you often hear thriller writers saying it was a nightmare when the mobile phone was invented because suddenly I've got to find a reason why they can't get out of this fix using their mobile phone.
1: Oh, the si- I've lost the signal. Oh, we're, in a, the we're in a very gone. bad area. Oh, my battery's gone. Um,
2: but but it struck me that this in the one of the sort of benefits of the post-COVID world for a writer is. that... That here are the masks that you you know that you can have a character wearing, and I wonder whether that was something you you've thought about as well of how am I going to use real life, or or whether you've thought actually I'd rather set my books a pre pandemic so that that's not an issue.
0: I've done both. So I here's the problem when I was writing during the pandemic and 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 we were thinking oh let's add the pandemic into it. You write the book; it takes you nine months to a year, and it comes out a year later. Did any of us have any idea what the pandemic would be? So my fear was, I'm going to be wrong on that. I'm going to be wrong on that call. So the book before this, which was Win, uh, or two books before it, Match, was different. I, I said it 2019, as you said, so I would not have that issue. Um, and Match, I kind of also I mostly ignored it because also part of my job is escapism, and so who wants to be back there doing that and And it already feels like it would be dated to write about the pandemic in the way that we would have written about it if we had wanted this place the book in March of 2020. So that was part of it. And then when I'm doing this, and he's running through this, he's in New York and he's trying to escape. And I'm thinking, if I'm him again, how am I going to disguise myself? Well, in today's world, what I would do is I would put on a surgical mask. So I just sort of use that. I don't think I'll use it again, or hopefully, inshallah, I'm not going to use it again because we won't be needing them. But if we are, I, I, so I'm just using every tool at my disposal, but I don't really want to explore. And there's other people will explore it in nonfiction ways and and doing some kind of dystopian kind of novels. That's not what I do. I didn't really want to explore the pandemic in that way, mostly because I just didn't know where it was going to go. and needed anybody else. So if I'm writing a book and it comes out a year or two later, I, I, you know, I think I would get it all wrong. So
1: were there's some moments in during lockdown and obviously the American experience was similar in some ways and different um, uh, to ours. You had a, an, a slightly different head of state who was making some very interesting uh, decisions. Um, were, were there any times for you, Harlem, when you thought, how how do I write about normal life now? Because we genuinely don't know what normal life is going to be about.
0: Yeah, I, I do. Uh, and it, there's been other times that I've had this in my career where um, when I was in uh, a personal tragedy would hit where I wouldn't, I would say, how do I make myself care about these characters when something bigger has happened to me or whatever else? That's part of just writing. And so what I, you know, for a while I I was also frozen. Like when you, people said, oh, you had all this time, you know, to write, but it was hard to care about what I was gonna write when you thought maybe the world was gonna end. You know, you just didn't know where this was going. it just becomes something you sort of feel out and do, um, but I try to stay away from. I tried to stay away from it as much as I could.
1: But as Matt says, the mask is the perfect thing just for the moment. Most people will find yeah. they've got a coat from last winter. They put their hand in the pocket. Oh, I've got a mask. Right there, you go. It's absolutely perfect. Thank you, you, you've, you've mentioned the adaptations um, of your books already. I can't think of any other author who has such a fantastic record of their books turning up on our screens and we see the stories happening all over again. There must be part, you've been asked this before, must be part of you that, as, as you've written this book, for example, that thinks, "Hmm, well, I'm kind of certain this is going to end up on Netflix or Prime Video or something. Um, this character, that's going to be Richard Armitage. Uh, hmm. You know, that, that, you, that you're seeing it, you're visualising it. Does that change the book at all?
0: This will sound like a self-serving answer, but I'm, 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 you know, there's no reason at my stage of my career not to be completely honest. I don't think that way. I think the biggest mistake I can make as a writer, which is why I'm so careful about it, is if I write a book thinking, ooh, this is going to make a really great series. It's the kiss of death. And if you're a writer out there, don't think that way. The two caveats to that for me are I make vast changes and I don't care about being, I think the worst adaptations and Maybe the reason why the adaptations have worked is, I think the worst adaptations in thriller world, especially, are the ones that stay slavishly devoted to the text. I have changed many, many things, and the decisions have always been mine. So the stranger in the book was a, was a nerdy white guy. Um, in the uh, in the series, it was Hannah John Kamen. Um, I've changed locations. I've changed story. I've added different new plots. I've had extra twists in the end. I'm all in favor of that. so I don't have to worry that will this book translate well because I'll I can change everything I want and I will find you. I don't believe that I have to stick with it. The other you know the other thing is is that you know, uh, people our age when they uh, when you ask a writer what's their influences and they start going into oh, um, Dostoevsky, um, Proust, I mean, that's such nonsense. Yes, yeah, so of course, we all read them and we love them, but we grew up on TV. So we do think, and I think a lot of the writers think you, you, when you're talking to writers, you're not saying to me, I like this chapter. You're saying, I like this scene. Mm. Because we think cinematically. And to deny that is nonsense.
2: I think that so that's really interesting because we had, um, well, as Simon's already said, we've had Lee Child on a, a number of times, and he makes a point of saying, I can always spot. Uh, writing where someone has written it thinking, Oh, this will get made into Italian. It's a big mistake. And it's a huge, as yeah. you say, a, a massive mistake. I want to talk to you about So, uh, another author we've had on recently was uh, Linwood Barclay, who talked about um, how he inhabits a world of what ifs. In other words, in his normal everyday life, he is constantly going, The. So if, if she had turned a different way or that had happened when she'd got onto that plane, that will turn into an amazing premise for a book. And it it struck me that that might be something that you would you'd have sort of common ground on that as well.
0: Very common ground. I mean, all, all fiction writing for me is, a, is asking what if. Every idea I've ever come up with, I'll give you some ex- specific examples, are what ifs. Uh, I, I walk around, my default life position is asking what if. Where's the sliding door? What could have happened instead? How can I take a small moment and change it around? How can I turn left at the fork in the road instead of right and change everything about the rest of this person's life. All the time. Um, I, I, you know, I wrote a book recently called uh, The Match and the Boy from the Woods. There were a series of the character named Wilde. And the what if there was, I was hiking through the woods with my family. I hate hiking, I don't really get it. Everyone's <laughs> into do hiking now. To me, I'm sitting there like, I like walking through the streets, I like walking through London and seeing shops and people and browsing bookstores, but I, I'm like, oh, there's a tree. There's another tree. There's another tree. Who the fuck cares after a while? And I'm whining like this. It's hot. And I'm looking for a drink. And where's the restaurant? And I'm whining like this with my kids. And all of a sudden, I see a little boy walking on a parallel path. He's like five or six years old. And I think, what if? What if this kid just came out of the woods right now and said, I've always lived in these woods. I don't remember any parents. I don't remember any life before that. And we never find. He never finds out what, how he got there. Thirty years pass. He still doesn't know. And now he gets a, a match on a DNA test, and is going to get the answers. That's a, an example of what I mean by a what if.
1: That sounds like a muscle. That the more you use it, the more you've got a what if muscle. And the more you exercise that muscle, the more it's more. The, you know, you'll probably walk out of these studios, and something will happen. You go, oh, okay.
0: All the time. 98 percent, ninety-nine percent of them, I dismiss. They're not good enough to be a story. And then some will get through. It's like a winning a second-tier lottery ticket. Some will get through that to the next level. And then I'll think, is this, a, is this just a story or is this just a cute what if? Oh, wait, this is an idea. Do I, can I think of an ending for this idea? Oh, I thought of an ending for this idea. Do I now want to live with this? And is it going to be interesting to spend nine months to a year writing it? And will the right readers think that? So all these steps an idea has to get through. It's like sperm heading toward the egg. <laughs> Most of them just die on the way and one manages to get through.
1: How many stories do you have running in your head at the moment?
0: In terms of novels, only one. But, my, but there'll be 25 different things I want to do in a novel. When I was writing Wynn, for example, I wanted—I started running to do like an art heist, like the Gardner museum heist where they never found the Rembrandts. And then I said, oh, what about it? I always want to do a hoarder. Guy who's hoarder, and they find him dead in a, in a rich apartment. Oh, I always wanted to f- do a '60s radical. Oh, I always wanted to do a Patty Hearst type kidnapping. All that ended up in one book. So, um, but in terms of books, I only have one. I I, I can only work at one novel at a time. TV is different. I can I can space myself out a little bit more and do more than one TV show at a time. Uh, just
1: want to ask you uh, one more question. There'll be more with Harlan uh, when we do our Q A, which will be available for you uh, in a few days. And uh, I'm gonna pa- I-, I think I'm paraphrasing Ian Rankin here and I think I've mem- I think I've remembered it pretty much right. He says the bit that he the whole process about writing and then publishing and then advertising, the bit that he likes the least, is the bit where you go through and go said, said, exclaimed, I don't know, shouted, <laughs> murmured, you know, and just come up, try, just try to come up with different ways of people saying things in dialogue. <laughs> is, is, would that be right for you? Is that, what, is, what would be your least favorite and favorite bit of the whole process?
0: Um, you know, I, I'm a big fan of the uh, quote that uh, everybody gets credit for, but I think Dorothy Parker started originally, I don't like writing, I like having written. I really love the creation. I love the fact, like, you know, if you paint the painting all day and the canvas is still blank, did you really enjoy painting? I don't think so. I love creating. I love the fact that I love right now when these characters, David and and Rachel and Cheryl and Max and Sarah, come to life in a person's head unique from everybody else's. To me, a writer who, read, who who writes a book and it's not read is not a writer. I, I don't mean that meanly, but if you're the person who says, oh, I write only for myself, I don't care if anyone reads it, that's like saying I talk only to myself. It's like you guys doing this podcast for nobody. <laughs> it doesn't make any sense. So uh, this is the part, you know, for me that's exciting because now these characters are coming to life. So this actually is my, is my favorite part. I enjoy editing sometimes. I, I like taking a story that I think is not is you know, taking that ugly stone out of the ground and now turning it into something that is beautiful and valuable, I hope. Um, but it, nothing specifically, I don't do that specifically, he said, she said, well, that, that's the part that annoys me. I'm, I, I, my last step that I do in a book is I sit in a book, room alone, and I read it out loud to myself. It's like listening to a music piece for a false note. Um, and, I, and that gets really, that's sort of hard, and reading it again gets sort of hard. Um, But there's no point that I there's no part that I really don't enjoy other than when I get stuck, which happens all the time. You know, it's like, oh, God, where does he go now? He's escaped prison. What is he going to do? How can you possibly get away this time? You know, that's the part that I find hard. Harlan
1: Coben's latest book is I Will Find You. There'll be more with Harlan on our Q&A. We'll be with you in a few days. But Harlan Coben, always a pleasure. Thank you. very much. Thanks.
0: Great seeing you guys. Thank you so much for having me.